Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. That's where we're going to be rooted today in our word. And I'm just, uh, I want to let you know I'm excited about the month of July um, for a couple of reasons. One is we're going to take a little break from our Roman series for a couple of weeks uh, in the middle of July to just share a, a different thing. We're going to be uh, in our time here at the Hobart Portage campus rooted in the Gospels for a couple of weeks here talking about what it means for us to, to be safe and sound in an all is lost world. And so I'm excited about that, but I'm also excited because July is, is kind of what uh, I've affectionately dubbed around our office as Leadership Promotion Month. And um, I'm excited about Carrie Corbin. Isn't it great to just know like the Lord raised up from our congregation someone to meet the need we had? Like, I just love that. And um, one person wanted to clap for that. That's fine. <laughs> but I, uh, I have two, two more announcements that are coming up, and you shouldn't be missing church over the next two weeks because our staff team is growing. And so uh, I have a really big one next week. I'm really excited about it. I'm not going to say anything else about that. I've learned from Pastor Steve that if you say you're going to say something big and you don't say anything about it, I don't know what happens. People want to hear more. Yeah. And then uh, a really fun one on the 22nd as well. So um, I'm grateful to, for, to the Lord for what uh, is happening in our church. You're in Matthew. Yes, Matthew chapter 16. Yes? This always works better when you talk back to me. Always. Always. Amen. Thank you. Don't let Jerry be the only one. You, you over there, should, he should hear you, right? Not you hear him. Yeah. Hey, how many of you, when you were a kid, you felt invincible? Like you had like the, the radio flyer on top of the garage roof type of moment where you sat in the thing, thought you had wings and could fly? I remember as a kid, uh, I'm the youngest of three, which means I was granted the most leeway to do dumb things in my family. Nowadays, as a dad with three kids, I look at how my parents parented me, and I can't help but think they were a little too lenient with me. Like, my dad first taught me how to start a lawnmower at the age of seven, a push lawnmower, no less. Uh, my, my grandpa beat him to the punch. He put me on a tractor at the age of four, and I promptly ran into a walnut tree. At the age of nine, I rode dirt bikes. At the age of 10, I would tube behind our boat at 40 miles an hour or bust. All 90 pounds of me hanging on for dear life as I was hurled across a lake. Then at the time, when I was mowing grass or pulling wheelies on the dirt bike or feeling the spray of water in my face, I, I definitely had this thought, like, I am invincible. Nothing can touch me. But I also remember moments in life where I was brought into close proximity to my own mortality. A broken arm in sixth grade, a wipeout on the dirt bike. I had fender benders in high school, fender benders, not just one. And I almost decapitated myself when I was in college on a golf cart. So I guess anytime I was behind a wheel, I had bad things happen to me is really what that was. When things went wrong, I began to understand that I wasn't invincible. I was actually quite vulnerable. And if you believe you're invincible, finding out that you're vulnerable, is that, that's pretty, it's a pretty big shock. Many of us here this morning are lucky enough to have felt the shock of vulnerability. It means for just a moment in our lives, we felt what it must be like to feel immortal. We felt like we were invincible. But it also means that we've had moments in our life where death and sickness and pain, heartache and loss have all sobered us that we are not invincible, that we are actually quite vulnerable. As a child, as a husband, as a father... And as a pastor, here's what I've seen about this, is that we will do anything to avoid 
feeling vulnerable, won't we? We will move heaven and earth to get that sense of safety that we all desire. If I can say it this way, we, we don't rest until we feel safe and sound. And parents of teenagers said, amen. Because you don't rest until your child is home, in their bed, sleeping, safe and sound. Safe and sound. Don't we feel lost if we don't feel safe and sound? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be anchored in the Gospels, looking at what Jesus says about feeling lost in this world. The common denominator between all the passages of Scripture that we're going to be looking at together is this idea of, of, of the lostness that we feel and the desire we have for feeling safe and sound. And in the Bible, there's a moment in the life of the disciples where they had this feeling of invincibility, which gave way to extreme vulnerability. It's recorded by Matthew, who is one of the disciples of Jesus. And towards the middle of Matthew's account, Matthew 16, verse 21, which is where I want to start reading today, verse 21, Jesus says something totally unexpected. To set it up, though, we have to realize that just a couple of verses earlier, um, the disciples have one of their highest points in all of Scripture. We're not going to look at Matthew 13, 16, 13, but, but this is when Jesus asked the disciples, hey, who do people say that I am? And Peter, you remember this moment, Peter gets it right. He gets like the, the, the best answer. He writes the best essay for the teacher. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the most high God. And Jesus, you remember him, he says, he makes a big deal about this. He applauds Jesus. He's like, Peter, yes, yes, you're up to the head of the class, so to speak. And Jesus even says, I'm going to build my church, which the gates of hell will have no chance against the power of my church. Now imagine Peter and the disciples feeling rather unstoppable at that point. And then notice what Jesus says in verse 21 with me. Look in verse 21. We're going to put it on the screen. Uh, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go. Everybody say, must go. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And on first glance, these passages don't seem like, like this idea of you are the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. It doesn't seem congruent with what follows it, that you would be clearly identified as the Messiah and your mission would be clearly identified as suffering. Imagine this would have surprised the disciples. I want to actually label this section of Scripture the surprise of suffering. I imagine the disciples hearing as Jesus affirmed his identity. You're right, I am the Christ, uh, the, the Son of God, and you're blessed to know that. And guess what? I'm building something extra, extraordinary, and you're going to have a front row seat to watch it all unfold. The disciples, they look at each other with glee. They've waited for this moment. They were right about him all along. Everything they gave up to follow Jesus is all worth it now. And they look at Jesus and they say, well, what are we going to do now? And Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to die. And they say, what? How could that be? 
The disciples don't compute the equation. No, Jesus, you're a king. In fact, you're the rightful king of Israel as Messiah. And now that we have a king, let's kick these four Romans out of our land and conquer our territory once again. I mean, let's get the revolution going. But to this, Jesus says, I must go and suffer. It's the work that I have to do. See, long ago, God planned for his servant to come in a manner unlike the kings of this world. The kings of this world were noble, luxurious, had many servants, but instead, God's Messiah was going to come as a nobody, born into poverty, himself a servant. Isaiah foretold about the suffering servant a long time ago in Isaiah chapter 53. He says it a couple times. He says, yet it was the will of the Lord. It was the will of the Lord. It was God's will to crush him. He has put him to grief. And again, he says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Many more times in the gospel, Jesus would tell his disciples, I must go. And as I was studying this week, I was surprised that Jesus didn't say, I want to go, or even that I will go. He says, I must go. To to want to go or to will to go, that would be inconsistent with that scene at the end of his life where Jesus is in that garden, and he's praying. And he says to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. This is the surprise. That in God's wisdom, he chose to come and save us by suffering. Why would the invincible God become vulnerable to death? Why does immortality take on mortality? Why not defend the mortal by your own immortality or defend the vulnerable with your own invincibility? These are honest questions that many have asked. In fact, today people don't argue with the historical Jesus who lived and died, but many people argue with the idea of the invincible Son of God coming and becoming vulnerable. A Jesus that would die on the cross must not be any type of God at all. And this was true then, too, in Jesus' day. The apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth many years later. He said, but we preach Christ crucified. That's our message. Christ was crucified. And this is a stumbling block to the Jews, and it's folly to the Gentiles. And many today, like the disciples then, cannot wrap their minds around the conquering, saving king who comes to give himself by being crucified. And this thought is what caused people at the foot of the cross to jeer at Jesus. If you're the son of God, why don't you come down from that cross and save yourself? Because we don't expect a crucified Jesus, we don't expect a suffering king. We, we don't expect that in part because our life is a con- constant quest for safe and sound glory. We expect to be handed all the comfort that this world can provide. Case in point, looking back at Matthews, Peter. Look at verse 22. Peter, this newly emboldened Peter, Peter, this full of himself Peter, might have thought to himself, hmm, Jesus doesn't quite get it. If he's the Messiah, he ought to know that God is on his side. And if God is on his side, he's not going to suffer. And so check this out, verse 22. And Peter took him aside. What a moment that is, right? Like Jesus is talking, hey, here's what's going to happen. I must go to Jerusalem. And Peter's like, Jesus, hang on a second. Hey, why don't we, why don't we just go over here, just you and me, just you and me talking, you know, just you and me. You and the guy who always tells you the things that you need to know. You and me, Jesus, you need me in your life because you know that I know that you know that I know what you know. Let me help you, encourage you right now, because I think you're talking nonsense right now, Jesus. 
One commentator said that Peter tried to pastor Jesus in this moment. Can you imagine? And that, to make matters worse, Peter took him aside. And then look at this. Peter took him aside and, so one more, began to rebuke him. Listen, Jesus, you got this all wrong. I mean, Jesus, you, you don't understand. Jesus, hang on, hang on, Jesus. You need to know something. You're not speaking truth right now, Jesus. And look at what he says next. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. Literally, the Greek reads, God forbid it. So he says, Lord, God forbid. Like, God won't allow this to happen to you, Jesus. In my mind, here's what Peter's saying. And we could translate this in, in English this way. Listen, Jesus, I know you're under a lot of pressure right now, but I just feel like God wanted me to tell you this as God's chosen one who is dearly loved and called by his name. He has a marvelous and wonderful plan for your life, Jesus, one which means you'll be spared the horrors of pain and struggle, especially any of this nonsense about death, because he loves you. And have I mentioned he has a wonderful plan for your life? Here's Peter's point. Jesus, that doesn't make sense. You're invincible. As the Messiah, you are invincible. And while Peter began, notice that, that Matthew, I love this. Matthew says, he began to rebuke Jesus. It was Jesus who finishes the rebuke. He says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, okay, Peter, whatever credit you just got, be called Satan in the Bible is not a good thing. We can all agree on that, right? You are a hindrance to me. That's a play on word. It's uh, Peter means rock. Jesus had just renamed Peter. There's a rock, the, the foundational claim that Jesus is the Son of God. You are that rock. And now that rock is a stumbling stone to Jesus. You see, see how that works? See, you can be two things sometimes. Sometimes your, your God-appointed name can also be the thing that trips you up. You are a hindrance to me. Why? For you're not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you might be ushered back in your mind to the moment when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan, who offered Jesus all the kingdoms of this world with none of the pain of the cross, if only Jesus would bow down to him. It was a temptation to take the easy road to glory. And, I mean, it's, Peter's an easy punching bag, but before we razz him about his guffaw, I think Peter's rebuke is so helpful for us because in his assertion against why Jesus wouldn't endure suffering, we actually find our own disbelief as well. What about those promises we have in the Bible that say God will look out for us and provide for all of our needs and keep us? Doesn't God want to just bless me? If I pray, he has to heal me. That's how it works. And I'm not into all this negativity, Jesus. I just want positive voices in my life right now. So let's get back to the positive blessings, Jesus. And if you stick around the church and listen to people long enough, you'll hear those constant comments and those constant refrains. And Jesus calls that type of thinking satanic, devilish. To Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Which is why Jesus' next statement catches our attention and it doesn't let us go. Look in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples... If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There's tremendous irony here. Peter's attempts to comfort Jesus with words of health and wealth and wellness are turned by Jesus into extending suffering, not just to Jesus, but to anyone who would want to come after him. Doug O'Donnell, who's a pastor in Illinois, he says in his commentary, he, he pulls out the principles here that there are two crosses at play in Jesus' words. First, there's the cross of Jesus. There's the suffering that would ensue at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders that were awaiting him in Jerusalem. And this is the cross that speaks of as his work and that Jesus does this to save our souls. Thank God for this cross. Amen? I mean, are we a cross-centered church or what? Like we sing and love and go back to the cross. And this is the cross that we look at for our salvation. And notice what Jesus doesn't say to his disciples. And this is so good for us to hear. He, he doesn't say, listen, I'm here. I've got a job to do. And once I'm done, you'll be able to sit back and relax and enjoy all of the blessings that I give you while you wait for heaven. No, Jesus says, I've got my cross, which is my work, but you have your work ahead of you too. Just as much as my work is cross work, your work is cross work too. Your cross doesn't save you. My cross alone saves you, but you have something ahead of you. So get to work. And that's the second cross at play here. It's the cross of self-denial and sacrifice that awaits us Christians on a daily basis. It's his cross and our cross. And never the two should be separated. And we need to hear Jesus today. Because many preachers on TV or many rising preachers and podcasts will give you an uncrucified Jesus calling you to ignore the crosses in your life today as you accumulate safety and wealth for yourself in the comfort of your suburban community. If you want those voices, they're out there. But the Jesus of the Bible is honest with us in the fundamental paradox of life. That whoever would save their life, trying to live with their own interests first, will ultimately lose it. And whoever would lose their life by living for Jesus and his intentions and a love for God first, will find it. And this is the foundational ethic that caused Dietrich Bonhoeffer to write the famous words, whenever Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die. You say, Dan, whoa, buddy, I, I came to Jesus because uh, of the blessings I was looking forward to in heaven, that he was going to forgive my sins, forgive my past, help me feel better about myself, and give me a new life. But I want you to hear this. Jesus' argument here is that our ultimate home in heaven, the place where we are most safe and sound, is only rewarded for those who follow the suffering Savior. Do you hear that paradox? Your supreme safety, safest place we could ever be is in the loving hands of our Father. Your supreme safety requires self-denial and sacrifice. And Jesus is encouraging here 
It's meant to convince us of the safety of sacrifice. In the first section, Jesus shows us the surprise of suffering, but here we see the safety of sacrifice. So many of us look at dangerous things in the world, the crosses in our life, as things to escape, not embrace, for fear of what may happen to us, for fear that is a lack of wisdom that would drive us to these things. And Jesus says, you're thinking about it all wrong. We ought to press, press in to the suffering, press in to the persecution, press in to the humiliation. Because at that moment, you're never more like the Son of God. It's the safety of sacrifice. We think of sacrifice and we think risky, dangerous, uncertain, not. We don't ever think of the word safe. We, we think if you've ever invested money, that little disclaimer, all investment carries with it the risk of loss. But Jesus says if you're looking for the safe path for your life, it's not found stashing your life away in some sort of safety deposit box where only you have the key and you get no return on your investment. Instead, he says, if you want to really be united with me as the Messiah, as the Savior of your soul, you too must in like manner deny yourself and endure the same ridicule, rejection, shame, and suffering that I do. To take up your cross, that it means to live like the change in your life is Jesus. To publicly live in front of other people, not that you found some secret, not that you're just a new person, but to live as if Jesus is the change. Crosses, they're always attached to Christ. And too many Christians think that they've taken up their cross by carrying some sort of burden in life. And it's true that in life we all have our hardships, but not every hardship is a cross. Too many Christians think that their burdens in life are their crosses like allergies. And as much as I hate them, allergies are not what Jesus has in mind as a cross. And I think that if it were possible in the plan of God for Jesus to have simply conquered pollen, our salvation in him would be memorialized at the communion table with a cup in the Claritin. No. We remember the cross. We, we remember the physical rejection of Jesus as the Messiah which cost him his life. And that's why today we held the bread which represents his body, not just wounded, but broken for us. And we hold the cup which represents his blood, not just bleeding, but pouring out on behalf of the sins of the world. We partake of the bread and the cup. Why, why do we take, why do we ingest the elements? Because we know by faith we are united with Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, but we're also partakers. We are partakers of his suffering, don't you see? See, there's this beautiful union at the cross. It's, it's at the cross where we, 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 the vulnerable, we, the broken, we, the ones in need of a Savior, we meet Christ the invincible, and we are cloaked in his eternal power and glory and dominion and love. And by his suffering, we are saved. We are made safe by his sacrifice. In verses 26, 27, 28, Jesus gives us reasons why we'd want to be engaged in such paradoxical living where we see that to try and save our lives is to lose it, and only to lose it is to gain it. And first, Jesus appeals to our risk-reward side of things. Look in your Bibles. I don't have this on the screen, but look in your Bibles in verse 26. He says, well, what good is it if you gain everything but you give up your soul? Like, 
How much is your soul worth to you? So on your phones, I think you guys have calculators. I'd love for you just to pull them out right now or like a piece of paper and pen. And just do the math. Just figure out a number. We're a capitalistic society. Everything's for sale, right? How much is your soul worth? Go ahead. Just do the math. You're like, Dan, I don't even know how to start that calculation. Like, there's no button on my iPhone that tells me how to, is that a cosine? Is that a, I don't know what that is. Jesus says, how much is your soul worth to you? But, but listen, is it, is it worth $5 million, half a million, $500? Is it worth a new sexual partner every night but not actually ever knowing love? Is it worth numbing your senses every day with substances that can't produce in you the peace that you're actually looking for? Is it worth the house and the car that deteriorate and depreciate? Or maybe your soul is actually worth so little. And dear God, I, I pray this is not the case for us, but I fear it is. Is your soul worth so little that you'd settle for comfortable living here and now, never having risked your faith for anything or anyone? What Jesus means is simply this. What a waste to be so selfish that you'd seek everything and lose eternity. So first he appeals to our economics and second he appeals to our sense of justice. Look at verse 27. I'll put this up here. He says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. Like in case, Peter, you think I am not the invincible one. Let me remind you, I am coming. I am the son of man. You will see me coming in power, in might, in the glory of my father. And then he will repay you according to each, what each person has done. There is a reward coming for how we do our work. And if we take our cross work seriously, you can count on the rewards being lavish. Notice that word right there at the end of that second line. And then he will, what's that word? What is it? Repay. That's an investment word. It's a stewardship word. There's a hopeful word. That's a promise word. Every insult you endure in life becomes a blessing repaid by the Father. Every wound you endure here on earth will be made right. Every cross begets a crown. And not here on earth, but in the glory of the Father. And when we align our lives with Christ as King, we will endure persecution of competing value systems. Sure, we're going to endure tribulation of competing kingdoms. We're going to endure hostility of those who misunderstand what drives us to live the way we do. And every time, on account of the name of Jesus, we stand firm in our faith and we share the love of God and it's returned to us with, with, with indifference or with isolation or even with venom, you show your faith that Christ is enough for you. And that's the final hope that Jesus gives in verse 27 where Jesus personally encourages those there in attendance that day that they would see this happen. And some of them wouldn't even taste death. I think Jesus encourages his disciples this way because he knows how afraid we are of suffering and what suffering leads to. And he knows how afraid we are of death. So he gives us the outline of two approaches to life. That's what he's been doing this whole entire time is just saying, here's two ways to live your life. My, my grandfather in his commentary, he, he outlined this this way. I thought it was so helpful for me. This is essentially what Jesus is doing. He's saying you can live for yourself and you can ignore the cross. You can follow the world. You can save your own life for your own sake. You can get everything in the world even. 
But it's going to cost you your soul and you will lose God's reward and glory. But if you deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Christ, lose your life for his sake, forsake the world, you will keep your soul and share his reward and glory. In life, you can either start with everything or you can end with eternal glory, but you cannot do both. They're diametrically opposed to one another. This is what makes the Christian life so hard, isn't it? It takes faith. It takes faith to believe that it was necessary for Jesus to die. It takes faith to believe that we have a cross to bear too. It takes faith to believe that true safety is found in Christ-like sacrifice. And faith to believe that he is the invincible one. See, here's what we do. We spin our wheels in this life grasping at invincibility, trying like mad to keep our lives safe and sound. When Jesus doesn't ever save the invincible ones. Who does Jesus save? He saves the vulnerable. He saves the sheep that are without a shepherd. He saves the lost that need to be found. He saves the hurting and the sick. Jesus says, I didn't come for the healthy. I came for the ones who are sick. Those are the ones that need the doctor. He saves people who cry out like Peter did when he was sinking. He simply said this. He said, Lord, save me. People who embrace the fact that Christ is their only all. This passage and this encouragement that Jesus gives to us to take up our cross and follow him, it reminds me of many missionaries throughout the 1800s and 1900s, particularly one named C.T. Studd, who gave his life for the message of Jesus while his friends and family didn't understand what on earth he was doing traipsing around the villages of India and Africa sharing the gospel. He lived on little. C.T. Studd actually had a friend come visit him while he was in uh, in, in Africa, and his English friend was so appalled at the condition of C.T. Studd's teeth, understandably so. Around here, like, we have great dentists, and it's ironic that a British person would go to Africa and tell one of his British friends, like, hey, your teeth are bad. My sister's a Brit now, so I feel like I can make that joke. And yet, he said to him, hey, come back to England, take, this, take care of yourself. You need to take care of yourself. And C.T. Studd, I I, 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 he, he sent him this reply. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. That's the heart that understands to find your life means you give your life to God, come what may. So let me maybe talk to us here for a moment because I've observed in my own heart, and I think I've seen it in your heart too, a pursuit of the invincible, a pursuit of bulletproof, ultra-protected, safe Christianity. A Christianity that is close enough to the culture of our days so as to evade any real persecution, but too close to the culture to offer any hope. I sense in my own heart that we've been playing it safe. In reality, safety has become our God. 
And how twisted are our hearts? Here, here we have Jesus offering the safest place in the arms of God himself, and we push away from him for fear that his way is so unsafe. It's the only word I can think of. It's just so reckless. And I once heard David Platt say this, and it's stuck in my mind so deep. I've been haunted by it ever since because I know it's true. He said, we're in far greater danger of being safe than we are of being reckless for God. What God wants from us to is to trust him enough to be vulnerable. To say to God, here's my life. Don't let me play it safe here and miss your blessings in eternity. Don't let me, my fear today, rob me of rewards tomorrow. You know, some of you have approached me multiple times and told me of your dreams of going across the world as missionaries. And yet you're still here and I don't know why. Some of you have kids who have expressed a desire to go around the world as missionaries, and in your fear as a parent, for their safety, you've politely steered them away from that idea, you, or you passed on a go trip because of the fear of what it would cost you. And did it, didn't Jesus rebuke Peter the same way he's rebuking us? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God, but the things of man. I'm so inspired by C.T. Studd. He's a guy who gave up much. He was a professional cricketer, whatever that is. He gave up his career. He was gripped by Jesus. And his heart was gripped by God. He gave up everything, brought his family to China at the turn of the 1900s. He had two kids. And then 10 years later, he brought them to Africa where he would die 20 years later. And every time he was asked why he didn't come home and settle down, he, he once replied this. He said, let us not glide through this world and then slip quietly into heaven without having blown the trumpet loud and long for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Let us see to it that the devil will hold a thanksgiving service in hell when he gets news of our departure from the field of battle. C.T. Studd followed in the footsteps of another missionary pioneer who knew what it was to suffer for Jesus. A guy named David Livingstone, whose life mirrored many points of studs. Livingstone was accustomed to feeling vulnerable for Jesus. When they asked Livingstone who, who he would have come help him on the mission field, this is what he said. He said, if you have men who will only come if they know there is a good road, I don't want them. I want men who will come if there is no road at all. These men, they remind me of a more modern missionary, Jim Elliott who died in Ecuador as a young missionary, his quote, he said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? May we believe Jesus is invincible enough for us to be vulnerable for him.